Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Dan Chaporin of Canon Partners. Dan was the CEO of Shopping.com, sold it to eBay for $600 million, and then became a VC, writing one of the very first checks to Lending Club. His path, how he found success, and some tips for what to look for in a job. I've been thinking a lot about improving the pay club experience the past couple of weeks. The app works. The core functionality of creating groups, requesting money, and then seeing who has and has not paid, that's all there. I wouldn't call it a delightful experience, though, and that's really important. The app, it can't just solve a big problem. It has to be a joy to use. We're all used to Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, Snapchat, whatever. Billion-dollar companies that have hundreds, if not thousands, of developers working on making the apps a pleasure to use. And as my CTO says, those apps still have tons of bugs. We've spent the past couple of weeks really focused on improving flows, page designs, buttons, screens, animations, you name it in an effort to improve the way that our app feels. Sometimes it's big stuff that takes weeks to improve, like our invite users process or adding people to a group. By the way, they're both much better now. And then sometimes it's just really simple things, like does a screen come in from the bottom or the left side, making them all the same, and and what does the app do when the pages are loading and some improvements in the sign-up process. Great software usually makes some terrible or arduous experience delightful. Finding a taxi, renting a house somewhere, paying taxes, doing payroll. Now, collecting money with a group. So it's crucial we make the experience delightful. We pushed a new update over the weekend. I would love for everyone to check it out. And we'll be pushing another update this week. Apart from usability stuff, there's also stability. Like, for instance, our our servers went down for a little bit last week, just a few minutes. And it happened to be when an investor of ours was trying to download it. You can't make this shit up. Another investor last week was using an old iPhone and the app looked funny on it, some kind of scaling issue. The list goes on and on. We're also fighting fraud, growing at new schools, and nonstop meeting with investors. It's really just high-pressure fun. That's what a startup is. Okay, that's it for me. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Dan. Okay, Dan Saporin, thanks for coming on the podcast this morning. Thanks for having me. I guess it's, it's afternoon for you a uh, Thursday afternoon. You're in Connecticut. I am indeed. Okay. Well, you are a partner at Canaan Ventures, Canaan Partners, a uh, you know, long-standing, well-established VC fund. But I'm going to venture to say that you didn't predict that you were going to be a venture capitalist when you were young. 
That is certainly true. Uh, I actually um, did not really know what I was going to do. Uh, and coming out of college, uh, certainly did, was not thinking about uh, venture capital at that point in time. Right. So you you uh, you went to Princeton for undergrad, and what were you thinking you were going to do when you graduated? What was your first job? Tell us about that. Sure. So uh, I had lined up a job in a commodities firm in Philadelphia, um, and before I actually decided to do that, I had a wonderful opportunity to go uh, over to uh, Thailand and work uh, for something called the International Rescue Committee uh, for the summer um, after my senior year. Uh, and that job was essentially being in charge of educational programs for Cambodian refugees that had fled uh, Cambodia when the Khmer Rouge communist regime was in power. And when they were kicked out, the, there was a whole refugee crisis that um, really centered around the uh, Thai border. So um, by, by virtue of uh, having an international affairs degree and by virtue of knowing some folks that, uh, that set up this program, I found myself for uh, what I thought was just a summer a volunteer program of going over and um, initially teaching English and got to know the um, head of the program there for the International Rescue Committee, which is an amazing, wonderful organization. Uh, started uh, actually back in '33, uh, helping Albert Einstein and other German refugees uh, fleeing uh, the Holocaust or the eventual Holocaust. Um, so uh, they, uh, you know, cater to sort of dealing with refugees and, and the refugee crises around the world at that point in time, which is back in 1980, the big one was uh, the Cambodian refugee uh, crisis. And so I was over there initially teaching English and got to know the head of the IRC over in Thailand, and he offered me a full-time job. So I wrote back uh, to the commodities firm, said thanks but no thanks, and ended up working there for just under two years uh, before coming back to the States. Got it. Why did you decide to stay there? Well, you know, it was an amazing opportunity. Uh, I essentially was uh, given the role. There was a refugee camp of about 35,000 people based in a town called Sakao, Thailand. Um, and uh, my role was to essentially run the educational programs there. So at uh, 21 years old, I was effectively the chairman of a board of education for a town of 35,000 people uh, whose language I didn't speak, uh, which is an interesting situation. So what, uh, what ended up happening is that I had a whole uh, roughly 600 people that were actually teachers in the system. And the UN, UNHCR, I should say, very specifically helped set up the, uh, the schools and helped helped me uh, with the curriculum, um, helped me uh, really implement the infrastructure necessary to, to have a school system. You know, one of the, uh, one of the many terrible things that uh, the Khmer Rouge communists did in Cambodia is they eliminated all education. So he had this period of five or six years while they were in power where there was absolutely no education happening um, uh, for, from uh, anybody or for anybody. So the idea was to set up uh, schools and, and programs where people could start to learn again. Uh, and uh, we found lots of former teachers, and we uh, certainly had translators uh, for me and uh, others that were there working on the program. And um, it was just one of the more amazing experiences um, I've ever had in my life, probably one of the 
seminal moments in my life. And, um, uh, you know, what I found is that I loved working together in teams of, of people. I loved uh, working together to help accomplish something. And um, after spending two years there uh, and feeling like, um, you know, that, that, that a lot of great things happened there, also some very traumatic things, uh, I ended up deciding, you know what, I want to come back. I'm going to travel for a year, come back and go to business school, and, uh, because what I felt like I realized is that leading an organization in some way, shape, or form towards uh, common objectives was, was what I wanted to do. But that was about as much as I had defined it. And so I came back and then went to uh, the Yale School of Management, where I got my MBA. Right. So, Dan, I mean, that's pretty cool that you were able just to kind of jump on this opportunity a really cool program abroad and then learn a great deal about yourself. Learn that you like working in teams. You like being a leader and it's like, okay, now I'll go back to business school and figure out how to uh, apply that on, on the next step of my journey. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I went to business school and, uh, it was a great experience. Uh, I got out and as I was getting out, I was still <laughs> unclear as to uh, exactly what I wanted to do. So I decided to essentially um, sign up for uh, yet uh, more business school, or what I call paid business school, which is uh, management consulting. So I went to work for uh, a management consulting firm named Mars and & Company uh, and stayed in the consulting uh, field for about uh, four years. And I found that um, I actually very much did not like consulting. In fact, I hated it. And I hated it mostly because, um, uh, because for me, it felt like uh, you were designing strategy, getting data, doing the kind of deep analytics necessary to help uh, organizations figure out where they needed to go and what they needed to do to solve their problems. And after doing all that work, you would hand it off. They would be the ones to implement it, and you would be off doing the same thing for somebody else. And what I realized, again, even more, was that I wanted to, um, yeah, I wanted to be the one to implement, not just the one to strategize about it. And, um, and so um, I ended up getting a job offer at uh, MasterCard International and spent, uh, let's see, almost eight years there and ended up becoming head of the debit program, global debit program there. So running a, a all a global debit programs uh, uh, for our pin-based, ATM-based uh, debit cards. And, um, and did that uh, up until the point where uh, back in the first boom of the Internet, the Web 1.0, if you will, which really started somewhere, well, I guess actually the official start, if you want to call it that, was when Nets, Netscape launched uh, back in 95. But uh, the boom itself went all the way through um, until 2001. Uh, back in 98, as things were moving along, it became very clear to me that um, this was a once-in-a-lifetime thing, the, just the Internet in general and the business models that would emerge from that. And I felt like, as I was about to turn 40, that I needed to hop on that train now or never. And so uh, I ended up getting lots of calls from lots of headhunters who uh, would say things like, um, don't you want to be in this e-commerce company or that e-commerce company because you must know something about it since no one else does. Obviously, a very different uh, world today. 
but uh, in the world back then where uh, no one really had any Internet experience because there was no Internet uh, up until that point, um, you know, the opportunity to become the CEO of, a, of an e-commerce company was very much present. And I decided I, I would take that leap in, in a, with a company that I fell in love with, which is a, a company that um, eventually became known as Shopping.com. Um, I jumped into that company with two wonderful, amazing co-founders, uh, both of whom were from Israel, uh, and um, they had put together the product, but it was certainly pre-revenue, uh, and uh, I love the product, which is a uh, nowadays it's, it's, it's a very common product, but back then it was um, very cutting edge, which was a, really a comparison shopping engine, and so... Um, so I jumped into that role as CEO uh, with uh, eight people, and uh, I guess we had three million dollars at that point, and uh, which which back then was seemed like a lot for a company. Of course, now it doesn't seem like very much at all. Um, and uh, went to work, and that was back in the beginning of uh, January, uh, 1999, uh, and uh, and from there took it all the way through. Going public in 2004 with about uh, $130 million of revenue and quite profitable uh, to selling it to eBay in 2005 uh, for about $620 million. And so from that point, uh, decided that uh, having been the CEO of a venture-backed company and sitting on one side of the table, that I should take the lead. Table of being a venture capital investor, and had the good fortune of meeting uh, folks at Canaan Partners, and uh, signed up with them, and have been there for the last twelve years now. Dan, that's a cool story. I guess two quick questions come to mind here. The there's one about risk, and you said you're forty years old, and you're going to go do something completely different. So that'll be the second question. The first question is you said you had a lot of interest from headhunters, and you went and became a CEO of, of this firm that was very different from the work that you had been doing previously. What was it that attracted all these headhunters to you? Like, What was it that allowed you to go get a CEO job? Well, uh, it, there, it was uh, candidly, it, I, I think it was um, a moment in time. Uh, and by moment in time, I mean you had this new world that was emerging, Excuse me, emerging, um, and that was the world of e-commerce and and the internet itself, which was only at that point. Um, I mean, the internet's been around for, obviously as a, a, a DARPA and defense project for quite a long time. In terms of what I would call the commercial internet, um, that really was you know the very beginning of that was 1995 with Netscape, and um, and so we're back in '98 when I started getting all the calls. Sorry and that, that was a, a, a situation where, <clears throat> where um, there literally was no nobody with any particular experience in e-commerce at that point. Uh, the commercial internet had been around for only roughly three years, and so people reached to me. I I think uh, primarily because I was involved in uh, you know I was a senior executive at a payments company, and um, that seemed and people were paying for things uh, over the internet and everywhere else through credit cards and debit cards. And so that was, um, I believe, the rationale for calling me. And literally, as I mentioned before, 
I had people saying, you must know something about e-commerce because we haven't found anybody else that does. So, um, so I knew something about it, but it, it was at a rudimentary level similar to others. And what I did know, though, and felt I knew, was how to run a company. And that was, um, you know, that was something very exciting for me to be able to uh, go from even a, a large uh, group and division that I was head of to a much, much, much smaller uh, playing field at that time. Uh, but to be able to put my own mark on it, to be able to, in many respects, self-actualize out of it and actualize for others as well. Right. You know, really lead an organization and be part of an organization that had common goals together. And that was something I felt like um, I'd wanted all my life, and, and I got it. Yeah, that's that's so cool. So that the getting the MBA that helped you get the job at Mastercard, which which set you up for this. Did the MBA help again in getting in getting the CEO job and actually executing on the CEO job? Was it valuable? Yeah, you know, listen, this is one thing I would tell you. I would tell your listeners. Uh, you know, in many respects, I uh, as I mentioned, I absolutely hated. Uh, consulting and the work I did in consulting uh, for the reasons I described. But I will tell you it was one of the most valuable experiences I ever had because what I did learn is to is the, the kind of deep analysis and fact-based research and understanding that, that um, I think is essential to making good business decisions. Uh, and I learned it at a very, um, again, a very deep level. The MasterCard experience was um, a very different one in that um, it was really running an organization within the company. Uh, it was, um, you know, implementing a sort of strategy in addition to uh, thinking about strategy and analyzing what we needed to do. Uh, and it was a great experience. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, but I also found myself becoming frustrated and candidly uh, somewhat bored uh, by the fact that, uh, like any large organization or company or bureaucracy, um, decisions take a long time uh, to make and um, a long time to implement and uh, have to go through many layers, especially when you're a matrixed organization like we were. And, um, and you know, that was very, very frustrating for me. and something that led me to think about even before I got the head under calls on, on e-commerce to think about, you know, taking another step to doing something that would be um, uh, more of an environment where uh, I could run the show uh, directly uh, as opposed to working in a large organization. And so um, having said all that, I do find, I did find, and I, I, I look back and find that many of the things that I learned uh, at MasterCard and, and even hated there in terms of process and, um, <clears throat> you know, for, you know the, the negative term would be bureaucracy, but, but the positive term, I guess, would be process and process flow and how things um, need to work in large organizations was very valuable as we scaled the business, as we grew the business at Shopping.com, you know, from eight people to, you know, we had 300-plus at, at, at the time we sold. Um, and, you know, I got to choose 
um, well, this is the kind of process we should have in place. And this, and I also got to choose. This is the kind of process that I don't ever want to have in place. But the fact that I was able to make that choice was a function of the fact that I'd been able to work in an organization like that for that period of time. Uh, so, I, I guess I would a long way of saying I don't think you have to love every job that you have. And in fact, you can very much not love it, potentially hate it, but you need to learn from it. And uh, as long as you're learning, and sometimes the best things you learn are the things that you are not necessarily happiest doing, uh, as long as you learn from it, it eventually sets you up, I, I believe, for things which you truly enjoy and, and are then given the skill set to, to handle and execute against appropriately. Yeah, Dan, I mean, I can relate. I worked in investment banking uh, out of undergrad, and I definitely did not like that. But now looking back on it, I'm, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. I learned a lot. It's kind of shaped how I, like you, like your consulting experience. It's shaped how I analyze businesses and business problems now. So it's, it's, a, it's a provided a great amount of value for me. Um, so great. Looking, looking back at your career now, that, you know, in, the, in the rear view mirror, it all really makes sense. You, you go get some international kind of not-for-profit type exposure. You figure out something about yourself. You like leading teams. You go to business school. You go work in consulting, which like everyone else, you don't really like it, but you take it because you don't know what you want to do and you want to open up a lot of windows and doors, which consulting definitely keeps open. Then you go get some industry experience at MasterCard for a while. Uh, and then you go become a CEO of a venture-backed company. You do that. It exits. You become rich, and then you go into the investing world. I mean, that's like a very clear transition, Dan. But I'm sure during the middle of it, when you're in the weeds of it, as you said, you didn't like all these things. You probably hated a lot of these things. But as long as you're learning, uh, it all kind of progressed well. Uh, you, I think you summed it up pretty well. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, so I had another venture investor on the podcast recently, and he said, we're all going to be living till we're 100 years old. How long is your career going to be? 60 years? Like, that's a long, long, long time. To think about a four-year period for you in consulting, to think about that as, oh, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am, am I on the right path? Am I not? It, that's, it's crazy to look at a two, three, four, five-year period on a 60-year career as is not being quite aligned with what you want to be doing, similar to like what Warren Buffett says. As long as you're learning, take the job where you're going to learn the most. That's the that's the important thing. Absolutely, and um, you know sometimes it's as important to learn what you don't like as it is to learn what you do like. Um, and there's really no way to know without uh, taking the jump. So you've got to jump somewhere, and um, you know if you don't like where you are, I guess my advice would be figure out everything you've learned, um, lay it out, and uh, then make a move somewhere else uh, that seems to be better suited for what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And even if it's not, even if you jump into a job that's not perfect and you have some additional frustrations and aggravations and um, irritations about it and feel like you need to yet do Another thing, that's fine. It's uh, I think it's you know to your point, in a 60-year career, you're going to have a there's going to be a step ladder, and you're going to go. I don't want to make it sound like you're going from one rung to the next as though you're going 
higher up the the corporate ladder per se because the, the, in that certainly is not not something that I would necessarily advocate but it's um, it's going up your own personal ladder of learning and actualization and understanding of who you are and what you're about and what makes you happy and what doesn't um, but there's no way to know that without uh, being in the mix I think sometimes people agonize too much about whether they should take this job or that and uh, you just make your move and 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 it all becomes a lot more clear either way even if you made the wrong choice in some ways you could say it was the right choice because because of that uh, because you learned what you uh, don't want and what you do, what you again correspondingly do want right so yeah yeah so there's going to be learnings from 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 whatever yeah i agree um okay so i mean being a you have you've you've had very enviable positions you've been ceo of a big company you've had a huge exit now you're a um, venture investor a blue chip fund you're the first institutional investor in, in Lending Club. But as you say, I mean, it's not all green pastures. I'm sure every single one of these, your current job, your last job, there's aspects of them that you don't like. That you don't like. That's, that's what work is. Absolutely. And, even, and look, in, in my current job, which I do love, um, it is still one where I am more of a coach than a player. Um, and I, some level earlier in my career, I don't think I would have been particularly happy with that. Uh, but I feel like I've had a great run in terms of being a player and that uh, one of the things I actually enjoy a lot about the, the business that I'm in is the ability to work with multiple entrepreneurs and share hopefully the benefit of my experience um, that I've had coming up uh, and doing lots and lots of different kinds of things. And seeing what works and what doesn't and telling people, you know, this part of the movie is not going to end well if you keep going there. And this part of the movie tends to end much better. Uh, so that part of the coach player thing and, and being more the coach than the player, certainly. Um, again, in an earlier part of my career, before uh, before I felt like I'd, I'd uh, given my all in the playing field, if you want to use that analogy, uh, probably would not have been nearly as enjoyable as it is now. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. I mean, things worked out the way that they were supposed to work out for you. It's been a nice progression. So, so Dan, let's just make this the last question. I mean, oh, go, go ahead. The only other thing I would say is that, that it may all sound very well planned out. Um you know, and, and, you know, certainly in looking back, it feels like I was very fortunate and luck is there is obviously a, a, a lot of life is luck. Um, but uh, I didn't really plan that out, any of it, really. I just tried to do whatever I felt like I really wanted and needed to do at the time that I wanted and needed to do it. Sure. So, Dan, let's... Let's crystallize all of this into, into one last piece of advice here. We've talked, this whole conversation's been filled with, with great advice. I would, say, I would say that kind of the main takeaway is just be, be learning as, as you go, and you don't have to love everything that you're doing. But in speaking with someone who's about to graduate school, not sure what they want to be doing, want to, wants to work hard, wants to find success, what do you tell someone like, like that in you know, following, finding their, their first, their second jobs? So, 
so let me just make sure I understand the question. Um, what would I tell somebody who's looking at taking on their first or second job in, in terms of how they should approach it or, uh, were you, or, or something else? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So look, what I would say is pretty simple. Um, pick something that you think you, you, you'll like. Um, and if you don't, that's okay. Um, but you know, try, try, you've got to get in the, you've got to get in the, the world, in the working world, if you will, uh, to understand what you're going to like and what you're not, uh, school prepares you for many, many things. Uh, but it doesn't really prepare you for, um, what it means to have a career. Uh, and the only way you really learn that is, is by doing it or trying to do it. And the other thing I guess I would say is just always remember, you know, <laughs> if you don't like a job, unless you're in the Army, uh, you can change. You don't have to stay there. Uh, there's nothing immutable about any decision that you make on a career basis. You can always leverage that decision to something else that you will enjoy more or certainly learn more from. So I would say don't agonize, don't hesitate too much about what you're going to do as your first or second job. Just go do it and uh, and learn from it and then try to continually uh, zigzag, if you will, towards what you ultimately feel like you uh, need to do and want to do and are best suited in the world to do. Great. Dan, I love the advice. Just go do it and learn while you're doing it. Very simple, very actionable. This was a lot of fun speaking with you. Sorry, I missed that last part. Oh, I just I just summarized everything you said and then said thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, you bet. <laughs> a nice way to end. Thank okay. you very much. Uh, I um, you know I, I appreciate the opportunity to to be uh, to be on your show and all, right. um, all the best. All right, thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. Let me know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you.